Welcome to Cities Unmasked, the U of T School of Cities sponsored podcast about the ways that COVID-19 has highlighted and deepened the contours of urban inequality while amplifying the need for an actualizing tangible action. For each episode in this limited series, we will explore a different lens of cities of inequality in conversation with Lubna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. This pandemic is just showing us that we've always had the resources and the means to help the communities that are needing the help, you know? It's just who do we prioritize and who do we care about? Recognizing what your community needs and taking it upon yourself in a legal way to, um, you know, transform the space and to make it your own and to take your claim on it. People who have like resource constraints be inadvertently excluded out of green spaces because they recognize that if, if they get sick, they don't have that kind of like access to healthcare. Why is that money going to one big park in an affluent area instead of, you know, an entire park system? So who are these parks for and, and what kind of residents are being prioritized? Hi, everyone. Today, I'll be leading a discussion on racism in the city and how city planning policies and processes, placemaking and the built form is designed with inherently racist principles. So in a 2011 study funded by the Canadian Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, Doctors Deborah Cohen and Vanessa Parlett write that it is now impossible to ignore that Toronto is becoming a divided city. Stacks of research confirm trends that are plainly visible in the urban landscape, social polarization, spatial segregation, and a deepening racialization of poverty are defining features of our city's social geography. These trajectories come together in powerful ways in which cities in our suburbs increasingly are home to communities of people of color in concentrated poverty, the residents of low-income inner suburban communities are also increasingly people of color. University of Toronto professor David Hochansky also found that Black residents are disproportionately represented compared to their share of the city's population in low-income neighborhoods, and white residents are similarly disproportionately represented in middle- and high-income neighborhoods. Using the 2016 census, his team calculated that 48% of Toronto's census tracts are low-income neighborhoods, where the average individual income is $32,000 before taxes. Fully, 68% of residents in these neighborhoods are visible minorities, while 31% are white, where white people make up 49% of Toronto's population. Black residents are 9% of the city's population, yet 13% of low-income neighborhoods are composed of black folks. White people are also overrepresented in the middle-income neighborhoods, where the average income is $49,000. This matters because in in July 2020, Toronto Public Health provided an update on the socioeconomic data for COVID-19 cases in our city. City Councilor Joe Cressy writes that, The data tells a story of two very different experiences of the pandemic, one for the privileged and one for everyone else. 83% of COVID-19 cases involve racialized Torontonians, even though people who identify with a racialized group only make up about half, or 52%, of our city's population. 51% of COVID-19 cases involve people living below the income threshold, even though only 30% of residents in our city are categorized as low income. Toronto City Council voted to increase the police budget by 5% to invest in body cameras instead of the original motion to divest 10% of their budget toward community safety programs and services. It does not represent structural change and puts funds into programs that continue to oppress and marginalize racialized residents. The systemic oppression of Black, Indigenous, and people of color in cities, paired with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, has raised concern in cities globally around the ways in which cities have always been designed to inherently sideline the interests of BIPOC and further the interests of white people. Many in the Black community demanding stronger policies and laws that combat anti-Black racism. Calls that have only grown louder since the death of Abdi Rahman Abdi in 2016. 
we need to start making policies where it's very clear on language, on paper, that we are like there, there is no race over the other. What is needed now more than ever is a complete revamp of law enforcement institutions. They were never built to, to help and support and protect people of color. Joining us today is Cheryl Case and Abigail Mariah, who will be introducing themselves. So I guess we'll jump right into that first. Cheryl and Abigail, would you introduce yourself kindly? Yeah, sure. Hi, everybody. My name is Cheryl Case. So I'm the founder and principal urban planner at CB Planning, my own planning firm. I'm also the uh, urban design coordinator with the city of Brampton. Hi, everybody. I'm Abigail Moria, and um, I work with the nonprofit real estate developer in the Commons Development. Um, over the last couple of years, I've been working collaboratively with um, students from three different universities to create the mentorship initiative for Indigenous Black and Planners of Color, MIPOC, and also um, working with Black planning professionals to found the Black Planning Project. So let's uh, jump right into it then. We'll just start first with what the episode's about. What does a not racist city look like? And by extension, what does a safe city look like? So um, I think that a not racist city would look like, um, you know, people from all backgrounds, racial backgrounds, being able to freely choose where they want to live rather than feeling like they, um, you know, have to live somewhere because it's the only place that they can afford. When we think about uh, incomes, oftentimes, um, well, it's a known fact, right? Like people who are racialized, Black, Indigenous, and other peoples of color are paid less than white people. That's why, you know, you stated earlier the stats about um, white neighborhoods or higher income neighborhoods almost being synonymous with this idea of a white neighborhood. Um, so a not racist city wouldn't have that um, that as a you know reality and that's um, a result of uh, unaffordable housing being spread throughout the city. Um, in addition, they would also have um, a wide variety of services throughout the city that can be accessed from people by people of all backgrounds. Yeah, and I would add to that that um, um, similar to what Cheryl has already mentioned, that planning in particular, which really shapes how our city environments are, um, have been and continue to be, that they it was really trying to understand that planning and planning professionals are understanding um, the context of individuals who are Black, Indigenous, and, and people of color in, in the, those communities, and really trying to understand the challenges and the issues that those communities face in terms of things such as displacement, gentrification. Um, sure, I already mentioned it, um, this sort of the socioeconomic polarization, things like housing, um, police and gun violence, and also access to um, like food insecurity, access to services. So really recognizing like what are those issues that could and do demonstrate that the current way in which we're planning our cities are marginalizing and further excluding and making it virtually unlivable for many people who are not white? And then how do we actually begin to um, plan differently and um, plan differently in the future as well as now to address, to, to recognize and also address some of those issues, some of those practices. So how do, how do planning practices have to change? And how do the people who are actually planning and how we're engaging um, with communities have to change as well? 
to your point about um, both of your work being focused uh, largely around um, housing, and you said that, um, you know, you know, it's not a it's not a secret. It is a fact that you know a lot of the planning policies um, do sideline interests of marginalized folks. That we see it in the numbers again. Um, there is this notion that even in our affordable city um, episode, we talked about it as well. That you know the sort of quote unquote um, a target or a standard um, for affordable housing is eighty percent. You know, eighty percent uh, of um, the market rate. Right, that's how they set their prices. But you know, that is not affordable for everyone. Um, that is just a that's a it's not a one size fits all sort of ordeal. And so, I'm curious to know what your perspective is on that, um, especially when it comes to housing and um, you know a lot of issues um, concerning policy redlining, um, which I believe Ali can speak to as well. Um, but yeah, I'd be interested to know your take on that. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so I think when we talk about housing in relation to market rate, that is, you know, that's a measurement that is can very easily uh, remove itself from, you know, being affordable for um, lower income people, right? Like, as we have a greater um, gap between people making a high income and people making a lower income, then this market rate definition, um, you know, becomes less and less useful uh, for actually providing affordable housing. Um, and when I re- whenever I think about um, this conversation regarding uh, affordable housing and how we measure affordable housing and how we plan for affordable housing, I think about the Little Jamaica neighborhood in Toronto. This neighborhood has. Um, while the overall population has gone up over the past 10 years, the actual population of Black residents has gone down. And that's largely because uh, Black residents are lower income compared to other uh, demographic groups. And so they're more likely to be pushed out before other uh, demographic groups may be pushed out. And then you look into, um, you know, are we planning to uh, you know, replenish the lost affordable housing and to increase the affordable housing? And uh, those are the questions that, you know, communities are asking and that I hope to bring forward in my work, you know, answers to how can we actually um, plan for affordable housing that meets the needs of people where they are now. Yeah, and I think adding to that, the, um, the like one of the challenges in the city with a real estate market like Toronto is that just constructing housing is not cheap. And I always like to kind of provide that example that you know, constructing a rental unit and constructing you know, an average condo unit. The, the price isn't different. And maybe there'll be some differences when it comes to new finishes, but the price is essentially the same. So the, the question becomes, and what are ways to, in, in, even in the construction of housing, to, to make it more affordable to in order to um, provide a product that is more affordable. And at the same time, we can look at the demand side. What are ways that individuals can also um, be assisted financially so that housing becomes more affordable. So we have programs that have existed for years and are there ways to increase the effectiveness of those programs um, so that individuals can better benefit from it? And are there and then are there ways also to increase how we how we actually construct housing? So if we are thinking about the the land and um, if it's 
land that is either public land um, that's available or is, is there an opportunity there to, to, to use that to decrease the cost of, of, of um, constructing affordable housing? Um, that could be one way of looking at it. And there's other incentives and incentive programs that exist. We now have the CMHC co-investment um, fund, which does help with low-cost financing. And are there other ways of you know, extending that beyond rental to perhaps affordable home ownership too, when you think about wealth creation? Um, and then when you look under the man side, what are ways that people can, if you're looking at ownership, what are ways that people can access financing or shared equity to um, be able to better afford housing, housing purchase? And when you look at rental, then, you know, what are the programs, the rental programs that can, that, that can exist to assist if it's, especially if you look at the, the tenure. So is it 25 years? When do you have incentives to build affordable housing where you keep those units affordable? Or is it actually 99 years or for a much longer period of time? So I think there's a lot of different questions that we can explore um, and, and look at jurisdictional, um, do jurisdictional scans in other areas to see like, you know, what have they done when they're really trying to respond to the housing needs of populations that economically from an income perspective are really, um, have been more limited and have, you know, a, a lower income than the average population. What are the best ways to, to respond to their housing needs? So there's, there, I think there are opportunities, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And, and we definitely have to take a more um, focused approach uh, to be able to, to respond. Or as Cheryl said, people will continue to be pushed out of the core and even some of the areas that aren't the core and will be pushed further and further out of the city. And we're, we're going to lose the diversity that we are. We take so much pride in as Toronto. To add to that, like when to plan for a city to uh, address racism that is structurally within so many different sectors of the city, um, it's really important that there's a, a multi-disciplinary uh, approach, right? Where you're looking at, you know, providing the services, but also ensuring that those services and service providers are diverse. So we stick on this topic of, of housing, um, you think about like who is working in the construction industries, right? Like there is a bit of gatekeeping actually that, you know, keeps black people, it keeps other marginalized and, and racialized groups out of those industries. Um, and so looking into affordable housing, you know, there's an income issue. There is a, a labor issue also, like the, the, these spaces are not, you know, inclusive, but they're also under, um, staffed like there's not enough people who are trained in how to build housing and so that puts a premium on the cost of housing and so it's this thing where um and i just have this idea that you know all things are connected and so when you develop one solution and you really hit the spot and you have a really great solution it actually has so many other great benefits so we're talking about planning for a city to be you know, non-racist or to be anti-racist or just to be, you know, equal city that, you know, has regard for the human rights of all people, regardless of their background, et cetera, then you're going to have a planning program that provides affordable housing, that provides employment um, opportunities, and then also ensure that the design and quality of that housing um, meets the standards of, you know, people of, of a diverse set of backgrounds. Yeah. And I wonder, like, I, I, this is just me kind of going on a limb here, but I, I know that often an example used is um, St. Lawrence Market and how that model is this model that 
encourage um, counselors to the public. Many people say that we should, this is the model that we could learn from, that we need to build more like this. And then the era when that was developed, um, I think city planning looked very different too. And it did take a more comprehensive and perhaps holistic approach than perhaps how we're, how we're structured right now. And so I, I kind of wonder, and I don't know all the details, but it just seems that that, that era of city planning and, and what city planning looked like at the city um, look quite a bit different than how we're doing planning right now. And I'd be curious to know, like, where are, what are examples of planning departments in, in other places that are taking that holistic approach that are really looking at, well, how do we integrate with social services? How do we integrate with economic development? And how, how are we really trying to um, do seamless planning? So we're, we're thinking about a the whole community, because I think ultimately if we can take a community approach to planning and think about like what do communities need to look like to be places that are um, that have the services people need that are affordable that that um, have good access to transit and those things if we could take that approach um, and that have you know environments that are healthy in and around them then I, I do feel like that could really have a qualitative difference in, in people's lives. So you've talked you've talked a bit about, you know, like um this this is this investment into um building more housing units to sort of like have affordable housing and and, and you kind of like talked about um services. I, I, I want to kind of like talk about it a bit further um but but sort of like through the lens of you know like infrastructure and and services you know and so so we were having this conversation about you know like racist infrastructure you know like what is it what does it mean for infrastructure to be racist and i, I want kind of wanted to like take like a historical perspective on this you know the so so this is from the united states the federal housing authority it started redlining housing maps and so they were commissioned by the federal government in the 1930s and these maps were critical to decisions of where and what type of infrastructure, lending and housing, each neighborhood of each American city would be able to receive. And so Ontario Pitilla in Not In My Neighborhood, How Bigotry Shaped the Great American City Rights, the FHA promoted home ownership in new and primarily suburban neighborhoods, so long as they were white and not ethnically or economically diverse. So so basically, if your neighborhood was red was redlined, there wasn't a lot of like investment in it. And so it's sort of like, because like the infrastructure wasn't being invested in, it sort of like fell into decay. And so I think kind of like feeds onto the point that Cheryl was talking about, you know, like about how there's sort of like gatekeeping even in terms of developers. So developers sort of like started avoiding these areas, which were, which were historically, um, uh, you know, like made up of marginalized folks. And they, they concentrated investments into white areas, and so so you had like services really stagnate over there. So one one example of this would be like West Oakland and California. So what what I'm interested in is, do you think that there has sort of like been redlining in the Canadian context? Um, definitely there has been. I am. I can give you first of all, uh, you know, there's a story about Thorncrest village in Etobicoke that I tell everybody it's just a really great example about um you know how planning of the planning of suburbs was quite a racist practice um 
so in this, you know, the, the Thorncrest village is a small subdivision in Etobicoke around the Eglinton and um, Islington era. Yeah, Eglinton and, and uh, Islington area. And uh, the developer was, you know, going around and saying how great of a neighborhood it's going to be. And there was an application process actually to even be considered to purchase a property in Thorncrest Village. And, you know, all the houses in Thorncrest Village were to be detached houses, very exclusive. You know, uh, you'd have to be quite wealthy compared to other uh, people to be able to afford a, a detached house. So um, it was exclusive housing and you had to apply and pay $100 to apply. And in the applications, you actually see that the people who were purchasing the housing, they said things like, um, you know, I'm moving here because my existing neighborhood is being uh, overrun by immigrants, or uh, I'm moving here because I'm looking to live in a nice, um, you know, neighborhood away from people of lower class. And um, there's no there's no way that the people who are involved in setting the plans for those neighborhood for, the, for this neighborhood and the many like it didn't have the awareness that the people moving to those neighborhoods would be of a very different dem demographic than um, the more mixed neighborhoods of, of mixed housing types. Um, and then also, yeah, and also the, these neighborhoods are very much, you look at the, the planning documents around these neighborhoods that are things that are, you know, filed by the city planners at the time. And um, they talk about the need for the housing value to be retained. And, and that's really the priority. Rather than, you know, prioritizing providing housing, it's, um, you know, serving that upper class white market um, and then further serving them by protecting any quote unquote threat of the neighborhood becoming more diverse through, a, you know, mixing up the housing types that can be built in that neighborhood. Yeah, and I think I'd like to use a um, an example from the East Coast. I grew up in Nova Scotia, and um, the Black population that has been there for 300 plus years. And one of the stories that, or histories that um, is most well known, even though still not very well known, is of Africville. And I think that I'll just read a portion from a book called Africville by Shante Grant. And, and at the end of the book, it talks about what Africville was. So Africville was a black community located on the shores of Bedford Basin in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Its population peaked around at around 400 people and the majority of its residents were landowners. Many Africville residents could trace their roots back to the arrival of the black royalists who migrated to Nova Scotia in the late 1700s during the American Revolutionary War and the black refugees who fled slavery in America during the War of 1812. For more than 150 years, Africville was a vibrant, self-sustaining community that, th that thrived in the face of opposition. Even though residents paid municipal taxes, they lived without services, afforded other areas such as running water, sewers, and paved roads. They had no police, fire truck, or ambulance service. As the city of Halifax grew, Africville became a preferred site for all kinds of unpleasant facilities. So we have environmental racism slaughterhouse, a hospital for infectious diseases, and even the city garbage dump. Instead of providing for the community, Halifax city officials decided to demolish Africville in the 1960s. Residents were moved out in city dump trucks and their homes were destroyed. 
many residents were relocated to public housing. So in their Africa Bill Lives On, there's a annual celebration um, that's a meeting that happens and in 2002 was declared a National Historic Site of Canada and the United Nations in 2004 drafted a report um, kind of essentially saying that Africa Africa deserve compensation. But so I say that this is our Canadian example of how a community that was explicitly a black community and you could note the same of past as well as current indigenous communities of how they lacked some of the essential services, even though they were tax basis. Um, thank you so much for your answers. Uh, Victoria, do you want to? Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about, Cheryl, being the bookworm that I am, I know that you uh, were one of the co-editors on House Divided. I was wondering if you'd want to talk a little bit about that and some of like the uh, conclusions and stuff you guys came to working on that book. Sure, yeah. Um, so that was a great experience writing that book and then also inviting a lot of, of other great people to, to contribute. Um, so, you know, we, the, the conclusions that we came up with are that um, in Toronto, the area that is currently um, exclusively zoned um, or prioritized for detached housing is, you know, an ex- like a large sum of the city um and you know you can say it's either one third or two thirds depending on how you met how, how you measure it um but it's essentially a you know, portion of land that has immense capacity when we look at the neighborhoods where we are seeing most of the growth in toronto and where growth is permitted it's about eight percent of the city it's it's just um you know quite harmful i think to to focus all the growth in those neighborhoods when so many other neighborhoods are um, seeing a decline in population or a decline in services because there's been because there's because there's been no population growth. Um, and so, some of the great things that came up in the story, uh, the stories that were written, were you know talking about how different you know people of different ethnic backgrounds experience um, housing in in in, uh, in Toronto. So, there was a really great story by a. Um, I believe she may be uh, of South Asian or, um, you know, of that area, Pakistan, South Asia. And uh, she told a story about how important it is to have um, um, housing where you live, multi-generational housing. And the, the way that we build housing currently, right, where you're kind of just building these one uh, bedroom condos, or there's maybe three bedroom or two bedroom condos that are very, very tight, um, don't make it very easy to actually have that lifestyle where you live with your family members, but you also have, you know, your independence. Um, so building a missing middle typology in the city um, that can be built, you know, for an affordable rate would allow for uh, people to have, you know, intergenerational living, which is something that is um, common in in, uh, in many in many cities across the world, uh, many of those you know being you know cities that are predominantly you know non-white as well. Awesome, thank you so much. Um, and for our listeners at home, we will have the um, Amazon link for House Divided link down below. If that's something that you would like to check out in your spare time. Back to some of the other previous points that um, you both mentioned. Um, 
to Ab- Abigail's point first. Um, we talked about Africville and the in Canadian context and the history of, you know, um, racist planning there. Um, but I'd be interested in knowing um, your perspective on, you know, how to deal with, you know, racist infrastructure, um, you know, be that statutes, buildings, uh, street names, um, you know, some examples that we've seen in the Toronto context, even, you know, um, the Winston Churchill statue, um, you know, Sir Johnny McDonald's statue, Massey Hall's name originally was, you know, master meaning means master's halls. Um, you know, there's so many other examples. Uh, Ryerson University has gotten backlash because their, um, you know, uh, their founder was a slave owner. So all of these different things are, you know, now coming forward. Um, and I'm wondering, um, what is your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that part of um, going back to one of the questions around, like, what does, how do we have a city that's not racist or how to deal with um, racism that we've seen? I think the first is, is acknowledging history and acknowledging um, the full history and not just partial history. So I do think that's critically important in terms of um, being able to to have, to tell the full story of what a landmark means, what a, a name represented what that family was at the same time. I think the flip side is something that we don't do as much is really acknowledging um, the past places too. And, and in terms of like what, uh, so we have, there, there there could be black spaces that have been erased. And so therefore they're no longer acknowledged. They're no longer known um, except by a few. And so how do we go back and to unearth those histories and to tell that story. I think that's something that we, in terms of looking at how to address racism within the city and how to reverse some of those trends or to at least, um, not reverse the trend, but to try to at least highlight stories that have been untold, that there is some work to be done. And I do think as planners, there are opportunities for us, not just as planners who are black or planners of color, but all planners to understand the histories when we go through our professional accreditation process, as well as when we go through um, uh, planning school, we learn about planning history theory and thought. And, and, um, and, thought. and, and there's, there's an opportunity then to, to really dig into some of the histories um, of how there have been you know, racist and classist planning, planning practices in the Canadian context, and then also understand that how, how, how do we recognize those stories? How do we recognize those histories? And, and, and then what's, what then is gonna be our response to at least try to undo some of that harm and to tell like the true story of a piece of land, of a monument, of a structure. So I, so, so yeah, while there is the, you know, this explicit addressing of those who could have been slave owners, I think, at the same time, it's equally as important to highlight places like a, a colleague had talked about the voices of Freedom Park outside of Niagara. Um, highlighting places like that, uh, understanding the histories of, um, of Black and um, other racialized and, and, and indigenous communities and peoples in, in the city. So the, like, what was Ashbridge's Bay called before it was Ashbridge's Bay? Like those things that we don't actually know because we've been using these colonial names um, for such a long time, we don't even know the previous history before. So I do think there's that there's a rich opportunity to go back and, and to name and to rename and to re-acknowledge the histories of some of those spaces. 
yeah, I think Abigail brings up a great point. Um, like the the idea of um, you know acknowledging history not just through monuments but also through um, you know, our naming of things and also the ability for um, us to think about how did people live before, right? Like, um, I just think, you know, oftentimes I'm, I'm thinking about little Jamaican neighborhood and, and how for them, the, the cultural heritage is not specific to the building or the built form of the building. It's more so to the way of life, right? The ability to have black businesses and to play reggae music that spills onto the street and to have festivals and things like that. Um, I think that that is extremely crucial in, in thinking about how can we return to those, um, you know, practices and, and, and that the ability for people to engage in those practices. Um, and then when we're thinking about, like, thinking about reconciliation with Indigenous peoples, um, they had a way of life before the process of colonization kind of squeezed them out of the city. And so how can we make it easier for um, Indigenous people to return to their way of life? And um, I think that, that's, I think, just as critical, if not actually more critical than, um, like, being able to return to those things is, is, is the most critical thing, I would think. Yeah, I was, uh, I was going to ask directly, um, like, do you think that it's a good idea to rename? And I mean, Abigail answered that beautifully. So thank you for that. Um, I'm back to the point about Little Jamaica and how it's, you know, currently threatened by gentrification and the Eglinton uh, Crosstown LRT. Um, I'm curious to know if you, uh, you know, is it possible to cooperate with these neighborhoods that are being gentrified and bring money into low income um, into the same neighborhoods that are being gentrified often are low income, you know, neighborhoods with BIPOC uh, communities. And how uh, do you, uh, you know, suggest that we have we deal with or, you know, navigate private public tensions, um, which is usually a very integral uh, part of the discussions as to why these tensions happen in the first place? Yeah, so um I think I just want to note, like the Little Jamaica neighborhood is actually a really diverse neighborhood. It's home to people of so many different backgrounds. Um, so there's so many different, you know, groups of people from different lived experience to engage. Um, and to address gentrification, you have to uh, genuinely engage them and 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 allow them to. Uh, be you know transparent with you about what their interests are. I think a lot of times um, in planning, we're not often able to have that uh, very honest conversation with the community about what their needs are, and then um, to actually work with them to develop solutions. Because uh, I know that there there are so many great and amazing organizations here in Toronto, and. Um, it really just takes some coordination and some time to reach out and, and to say, okay, this is who we have, like, these are the resources we have in the community. These are the resources we have outside of the community. And like, where, where do we need to go in, in this process to uh, build the bridges so we can have, um, you know, programs that can build affordable housing, can build sustainable um, community spaces and retail spaces and um, it's really about building up that, that fabric at that level. Um, I think a lot of times there's a lot of focus on uh, talking to people in higher levels about how things could be done and uh, not enough of 
you know, actually talking to people and building the bridges between um, community and the people who have access to decision-making power and to, frankly, to the capital to implement changes. You also talked about um, access and who has the building knowledge and, you know, real estate and development and construction. And, you know, oftentimes um, big developers are, you know, um, older white males that dominate that space. And you don't see a lot of developers that really, you know, look like, you know, people like me and you. Um, So I actually saw an article that went viral on Twitter, uh, I think it was last week, um, that was titled um, 19 Black Families Buy Over 90 Acres of Land to Create a Safe City for Black People. And this was in um, in Tombsboro in, in Georgia. And um, so just to preface the context here, um, after launching their Freedom Georgia initiative, Scott and Walters um, uh, I have to pull their first name, but we'll link the article on the website as well. Um, they attended local city council and zoning meetings, and then herself and none of the families came together to purchase a large amount of land in Tombsboro. And uh, they plan to equip their newly owned land with black farmers, vendors, suppliers, and contractors. And on Freedom Georgia's Facebook page, it notes that it hopes to be an innovative model for self-sufficiency, environmental sustainability, and cooperative economics among BIPOC communities across the African diaspora globally. So um, I'm just curious to know if you um, have uh, any sort of thoughts on this and um, uh, if you think that this is a model that we could potentially bring to the Canadian context or not. Yeah. So I, I love that those folks, you know, went out and, and did what was best for them. I do know that, you know, for myself, I have a lot of friends who talk about leaving the city and building their own little commune. And the fact that people want to leave is actually the, the it's a result of the fact that the city's, um, you know, not meeting their needs, right? The city has become such a violent and unsafe and unsatisfactory and stressful place that they had to leave. Um, and so, you know, I've heard stories of other people like in, in the Toronto region leaving and actually, you know, doing that, actually like buying property and like having a little like community for themselves. Um, and, you know, I think it's great for the people who decide to go out and do it. I do think though that it's, it is a huge sign that, um, you know, plan, like we just need, need to do a better job of, of engaging these folks. Um, so they so they don't have to leave because they felt unsafe in the city that they you know formerly lived in. Affordability is a factor um, for those in the city, and so I think that wow, that's a really really interesting example. Um, what are ways that lands can become more even affordable in the city, and and just looking at other forms of housing too. So I know the same area that. Um, Cheryl had referenced them. Um, they they've talked about exploring, you know, land trust. There's a Parkdale land trust, and I there's not really a lot of lands to do that sort of thing in the city anymore. But I think the question is, is that are are there other ways to make um, housing and just living in the city more affordable? And so even if people continue to live where they are, how do we surround them with the other things that are needed to 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 make to improve the quality of life? Um, I think. There are still communities in other parts of Canada that are fully black communities that still have, to the point earlier around redlining, that still lack some of the services um, as rural or semi-urban communities. So they may not have great transit community um, services. 
and not frequent transit services. Um, they may not have proper sidewalks. They may not have like a common community space. So those are communities that exist right now. They've been there for hundreds of years, but they still continue not to have the same access that that you compare to, you know, a, a, a white semi-urban or a more mixed semi-urban and um, rural community. And that's just communities. I'm not even talking about indigenous communities. So I do think that, like, while that's a really, really great and interesting and fabulous example, I, we, we still have um, communities that just we're not serving them equitably. And, and I think that's sort of the first question that I ask, like, how do we begin to do that differently? And how do we begin to do that better so that people aren't, the, the the solution isn't for people to move and to move further out, but rather the solution is to see how we are actually providing what communities need and just creating what we say would be a great quote-unquote livable community. Like we're actually working with communities to create those spaces and they can stay there for generations. Yeah, and I just wanted to, I guess, maybe like repeat the point I made earlier about like, because the people who developed that little community in Georgia, they clearly have a lot of resources. There are a lot of people in Toronto, in the Toronto region with a lot of resources. It's just that there hasn't been that coordination to allow those resources to really, you know, make change happen in a significant way. Um, and for that change to happen in a significant way, you have to really engage the, um, you know, people of color, people who are racialized, and you know who actually might actually just have resources and they want to help their communities and they're willing to be innovative um they just need access to the people who are you know making the decisions and those people who are making decisions are typically you know not racialized in the same way that you know black indigenous and south asian etc folks are yeah and i would say that like an interesting example that's emerging we'll see um is with the Black North Initiative, which is largely led by the corporate sector, but is has a number of committees to address um, issues and opportunities and create opportunities in the Black community. And in that, there's a housing committee, which I'm part of, and it does include individuals who are Black as well as those who are not Black and people who are coming from the like, development sector, real estate sector. So. I, so I think those conversations are needed more to say, and, and, and those conversations that lead to action too. So ideally that would be the result that both have, so we were able to share knowledge and share to say that, you know, these are some of the key challenges, um, that are facing that, that, that is being faced at, um, the community level. And, and so how do we then respond? And so the, it's not going to be one solution fits everything. But I think it creates that space and we need to have more of those conversations across sectors um, to figure out ways to um, respond to, to some of the, specifically around housing. But I think that, that can be said for other things. So housing is an area that, that I'm more focused on. Like that's, that is an opportunity to kind of say, OK, so what can we do differently? Like what does that mean in terms of how you need to invest differently or different? decisions that you need to make differently, you know, as a developer, when you're coming into a community, and who are you working with? Um, so I think there's a lot of questions there and opportunities for conversation, but we, it does have to be that sort of collaborative approach that is really um, engaging with community in order to ensure that the needs are met. And it's not just, you know, another great idea that still misses the mark of what's needed at the community level. Definitely. 
So this this question, like we've, we've talked we've talked a bit about it, you know, in indirect ways, uh, in in um in in this in this conversation. But I kind of wanted to make this like a direct question. So um, there was this analysis from the United States where where they which where they talk about how they are higher traffic deaths in historically marginalized neighborhoods, and they attributed this to um urban design and legislation in some part. And so what I'm interested in is, would you have any insights regarding how, you know, urban laws, legislation, zoning laws, et cetera, might intersect with race? I think who does the planning and who is making those laws makes a difference. So right now in how we, even though we're a very diverse majority, quote unquote, um, racialized minority individuals who are living in Toronto, we're the majority now, um, that's not reflected in, in terms of decision makers in council, um, elected officials, um, in the development sector, and in the planning sector, and in those who are making policies. So I think that, for one, there needs to be a significant shift in who is making those decisions and who's, who, who's at the decision-making table. And, and so one of the areas that I'm really committed to is around the diversity within the sector and not in like a loosey-goosey way, but really thinking like, how, what does that pipeline look like um, from when people go into planning school to when they get out of planning school to internships and they get jobs and how they're actually moving up in the field to take on more responsibility, take more senior positions and also leadership roles within the planning and development sector. And, and by extension, you know, government sector policy, the, those sectors that are influencing how we're planning and building out our city. So I think until that is shifted, like I really, because they're bringing their lived experiences, they're they're bringing they all, their experiences of coming and living in different communities. And until that's shifted, I, I think that we're going to, we're missing their voices and their experiences at the table. And so therefore we continue to recreate the same inequities in the city. Um, so that's part of the reason why with the mentorship initiative, why we started that, because we saw that gap, that we're not there and we need to create that pipeline. The same thing for Black planners. It was saying that, you know what, there's not really a space where we can talk about things that are relevant to us and we can find ways to build our own careers, to have a stronger voice in the sector and to also better serve the communities that we're coming from, because we come from communities where we haven't um, seen, where we've, where we've seen like planning gone bad, gone wrong. and that's part of the reason why we came into the planning profession. And so I do feel like that that's the, the pipeline is critically important. And it, it, it starts, as I said, from planning school in terms of what's being taught, who gets into school, right up through to graduating and getting into internships and getting into those jobs in the sector so that folks can, you know, build their knowledge, build experience and be leaders in the field. Yeah. So to just quickly uh, reference the OPPI um report on the diversity of planners in the province. Um, in Ontario, 9% of planners, generally speaking, are people of color or visible minority. The actual population uh, in across Ontario itself, 30% of people are visible minority or people of color. So you're seeing, you know, Essentially, we're massively mis mis uh, underrepresented in the planning space. And, and then, you know, that 9% doesn't even reflect the fact that we're not often in positions of, um, you know, seniority, right? We're often 
at the lower level of the planning space. And um, the, you know, the work from my pocket is actually really fantastic because it brings to light the issues of uh, that, that are experienced by people of color who seek to enter and stay and thrive in the planning space. So not only is it difficult to enter into the space, oftentimes once you get into the space, you are either you're pigeonholed into you know writing equity reports that sometimes should on, sit on a shelf, right? Um, or you um, are you know prevented from getting you know promotions that will allow you to have decision making power. And like the the little point I made about like equity reports, like I think they're super super important. The issue though is that um, it has to be the people who are implementing programs who are prepared to you know implement. The, the, the consciousness of an equity of, of equity right you can't um, write a report on equity and then expect someone to start implementing it the people that those people have to be um, with the existing interest to implement an equitable approach um, is it can I, re- can I repeat that I feel like I didn't say that properly okay thank you yeah. So, uh, yeah. So the points that Abigail made were fantastic. So just to quickly quote the uh, OPPI 2019 uh, benefits report, this is a survey of all planners from across uh, the province of Ontario. So in Ontario, 9% of those who responded were people of color, visible minority. So that tells us approximately 9% of all planners are people of color, visible minority. Um, this is a uh, much lower than the actual proportion of Ontario that is a person of color or a visible minority. In Ontario, 30% of the of the population is a visible minority or people of color. And so that just shows that we're really underrepresented in the field, just in general. Uh, but then if you look into positions of leadership, it is even you know more apparent that we are uh, underrepresented. And um, you know, the program that the, by Abigail, the MIPOC program and all those involved in, uh, you know, leading that program, it's, it's such an amazing thing to have because um, this, this, you know, they had a, a report that came out actually that was featured in Spacing Magazine called Why is Planning So White? And in this report, it talked about the barriers that are you know, experienced by people of color to uh, enter, stay and thrive in the planning sector. And one of the things I found really interesting was that fact that um, not only is it difficult to, to do all those things, it's actually really d- difficult to be, in some ways, your authentic self in terms of, you know, maybe you, you really care about other minorities. You really care about providing affordable housing or employment or, um, you know, doing these really critical things to support for, you know, healthy cities. Um but you may not actually be able to implement those things because of the, I guess, the general environment of planning. And um, you may be um, even pigeonholed into certain positions and not able to implement the changes needed um, or even prevented from accessing promotions because you're a person of color and you're facing discrimination uh, from members in your work, in your workplace. So I just wanted to start before we begin to wrap up and stuff. I just wanted to thank you both so much for your insights. Um, kind of on like the planning world right now and the future of the planning world. Um, 
one of the things that we kind of like to do on the podcast before we wrap up is kind of bring things back to um, an individual level and our podcast listeners at home. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you guys is if you think if there is anything um, that you believe from your perspective that the average person or podcast listeners can do that would help with assisting and supporting efforts to sway planning into a more racially accessible direction. Um, I would say that you should engage with your uh, student uh, union if you have one. Um, and then also the alumni association. I think those are extremely uh, valuable spaces where you can have those conversations and think about ways to, to tackle some of these really large issues. Um, also, you know, apply for grants, you know, take risks and just try and uh, create something different. And um, so that would be my advice. Yeah, I would say that um, if, you're, if, if you're a practicing planner and you're connected to OPPI or CIP, like that's an opportunity to engage and to be an ally and to support um, work that is happening. Um, I know OPPI, through the, they put out an anti-racism statement in June and um, through the Black Planning Project, we responded and we've been having conversations with them. So there, there will be things coming out of that conversation and so opportunities for the broader membership to, to engage. And I think that's really important, as we said before, that it's not just, um, you know, the burden and the, the um, requirement of Black or Indigenous and racialized planners to be doing this work, but that it's a, it's, it's a shared work and it's a responsibility that we have together. I think the other thing is history. Like, we can all, you know, pick up a book, do some history, dig, learn about, you know, where, where you live, um, treaties in the area, learn about the history um, of planning in a particular area or just the history of the community. Like, I think those are, there's so many resources out there now that um, people can kind of tap into to do their own kind of self-learning and, and reading. And I think that if you're in an organizational environment um, that is beginning to welcome and become more diverse, welcome um, more diverse individuals and become more diverse, um, yeah, find ways to to support that, to to learn about how you can, um, what you need to unlearn and, and things you need to relearn and how you can actually create it in an environment that is welcoming and that is inclusive and that is um, explicitly anti-racist. So just really, really questioning some of the norms that we may have organizationally um, from when we hire to, um, to how we engage regularly to questions we ask to knowledge and practices that we value in our professional environment, um, regardless of the level of seniority that you're that, that you have in an organization. I think those are opportunities that individually in the workplace personally and in our professional role as well as society that we can take to um to, to counteract and to really begin to um undo much of the harm that racism has and has been and continues to cause in our cities. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all of the insights and information that you had to share with us today and um, to our listeners as well. We will definitely link all of the resources that you mentioned. I've, I've been taking um, notes um, with timestamps of different, uh, you know, reference of you, references you've made to different documents and books and whatnot. So if anybody is looking to access any of the things that we've talked about, you can find it on our website. Um, thank you again for sharing your knowledge and time and expertise. Thank you so much as well. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Cities Unmasked with Lumna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. 
If you like our show and want to know more, please check out our Instagram page at Cities Unmasked. Or leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. A special thank you goes out to the University of Toronto School of Cities.